The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the place that you find a voice, a voice you don't hear elsewhere, a voice of reform, a voice of modernity, a voice of an American Muslim who believes, as I've told you week to week, who believes that we have a Muslim problem that can only have a Muslim solution. We talk about the things that are not covered in other places. Uh, You can come here to get the status report, the reform report of where we are in the battle against radical Islam, of where we are in national security, of where we are in the threats across the Middle East, domestically and abroad, not only against ISIS, but against the ideologies that fuel them. And as we learned this week with the President's State of the Union, we can review and look that, well, ISIS is on the way out and it's gone, but did we defeat the ideology? And this is the place I hope you come to to realize that we have a lot of work ahead. So thank you for being back. If you're new, I hope you come back. I hope you realize that you get some nutrition here for the soul, some nutrition for your American citizenship, that we can together come together as one in keeping our country safe. And, you know, that's the theme I wanted to start on today is what does it mean? What does it mean to come together as one? What does it mean to be united, to be united across partisan lines, across the aisle? Is that possible or does every president represent a polarization of that party's worst or best characteristics? Is it possible for the other party to stand up and cheer ideas that it agrees with simply because it agrees with those ideas and it doesn't matter who the speaker is and it doesn't matter The fact that that might give the other side some points of victory, partisan victory. And I think when we talk about reform, that's something that we take it all, oh, you you know, we'll work. I hear Americans in Washington, New York, across the country say, oh, we're going to work with Muslims who share our values, whether it be feminists, whether it be gay rights activists. We want them to share the ideas of universal freedom, universal human rights. And yet, in our own house in America, we find a president who's described as divisive and other issues. And yet, when he gives a State of the Union, I have to tell you, I mean, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is during his State of the Union, there were things said that I thought everybody would be cheering for. I pulled out some quotes that I think represent, regardless of who said them represent what everybody should have been cheering for. The president said that the, let's even, let's set aside the issues that you and I focus on from national security, religious reform, etc. He said the jobless rates are the lowest ever, especially for the African-American community. It's seen the lowest in 40 years. For Hispanics and other minorities also. Why wouldn't they stand for that? And I think that shows where people say, why are you having so many obstacles in the work that you do, Zudi? Why can't you get traction? Well, when the focus in Washington, 
when the focus is about divisiveness, how do we use identity politics? How do we use minority politics as a club across the head of the other party? It's almost impossible to make advance. It becomes the party of resistance rather than the party of bringing America to success and moving forward. The president said, as he talked about the unification of the ideas of who we are as Americans, he reminded us of who we are is why we stand proudly for our national anthem. And that was looked as a poke in the eye. Well, if you look at the polls, yes, Colin Kaepernick and all these others, they have rights to express themselves and they can do so uh, at various times. But the issue of the national anthem we've talked about here, it's a time that we come together. The president then said, because Americans are dreamers too. That was my favorite line of the night. You know, the DACA, the DACA issue, D-A-C-A, uh, the Dreamers Act, uh, people born here that, uh, or brought here at a very young age rather that are illegal, uh, but yet not on their own choice. Is there a way to prevent their deportation in a settlement across the aisle about what we do about the immigration problem. And President Trump has actually given up a lot more than many of the conservatives wanted, which is he's willing to allow 2 million plus to become citizens and a pathway to citizenship in the Dreamers' designation if the border is built and we have a firm border security first. And people, the Democrats, sat on their hands. And I think his sentence about because Americans are Dreamers too – Yes, my parents were immigrants. Yes, my work is dedicated to that American dream, which is so uniquely, universally humanitarian, which is that every human being, every human being has a right, has a natural, inalienable, universal right under God, not under government, not under Islam, not under Christianity or Judaism, under God, to have that American dream to succeed and do what they want free of the shackles of government. That's an American dream. Well, the dreamers who came here at a very young age, not of their own choosing, we Americans, every American is a dreamer too. Why should they be deprived? Why should any American be deprived of their dreams because of the dreams of a select minority? Just as the majority should never oppress the rights of a minority, the minority should never have its rights displace the rights of the majority. There is no equality before the law unless all are equal before the law. And I think this is the beauty of this statement because all Americans are dreamers too. We also saw this week in the State of the Union Repeatedly, the president said, and again, this doesn't matter what you think about the president. If a president, whoever it may be, who is our commander in chief, and listen, this is coming from somebody who served as a naval officer under President Clinton, who was my commander in chief. I swore to protect and uphold the U.S. Constitution, but I had little respect for a number of not only his policies ideologically, but who he was as a person. And yet, I believed in this country and the democratic rule of law and the fact that he was selected 
elected in a fair election as our president for two terms. The Dems yet, the Democrats, sat on their hand this week in the, in the State of the Union as the president called for merit-based immigration for those who love and respect our country. Merit-based immigration for those who love and respect our country. I, I can't believe they sat on their hands. So what's the opposite idea to that, that if you don't applaud that, then it means you don't want merit-based immigration and you want people who don't love and respect the United States to come here. That's basically the definition of an insurgency. So the Democrats appear to be the party of foreign insurgency, the party for the foreign insurgents who want to come and destroy our country ideologically, who believe in Islamic theocracy, who believe in Islamic Sharia states, that we should allow those people to come in, communists to come in, tyrannical Russian autocrats, kleptocrats to come in, communists with no merit based on what they bring our society or ideological filter. Is that who we should allow in? That's not dreamers. Those are people who want to snuff out our dreams. And yet, one side of the aisle sat on their hands. And you know, when, you, when I look at the work of bridging across the aisle in talking about women's rights and talking about civil rights, human rights, that so many people are missing in Muslim-majority countries, that exemplary engagement of human beings needs to start here. How could anyone, one of the most, and, and again, it doesn't matter who was at the podium as president, the fact that we saw Ji Sung Ho, a man whose extremities were almost destroyed as he walked thousands of miles escaping North Korea into China and ultimately now is in Seoul, South Korea doing the work of human rights and has gotten so many awards as a Korean hero and the president stood, had him stand up and wave his crutches and he said, your great sacrifice is an inspiration to us all. Ji Sung Ho represents to me as a Syrian-American, what so many of the Syrians that are against the Islamists and against the Assadists represent in Syria, what the freedom fighters were and are in Afghanistan and Iraq and were in Europe against the Nazis, against the dictatorships and fascists across history. And we see this year after year after year. We heard the president also acknowledge the fight for those who want to be free in Iran. It is America's role to be their voice, to defend their freedom, to be part of who they want to be. And we heard that. And yet, no Democrats stood up. None. I'm not being partisan. I want to understand what are you granting somebody? What is the defeat you are giving if you applause if you applaud the ideas that you agree with, infrastructure, whatever it might be, this is the pathology, this is the sickness that we're in. When we come back, when we come back, what can we learn? Where do we go from here? What should be the mission? What is the state of our union and the state of the reform across the United States? This is Zudi Jasser. I'll be right back on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to reform this on the Blaze Radio Network. This week we're talking, what else we could talk about? The State of the Union. Wall-to-wall coverage of the State of the Union. And, you know, for the first time, President Trump was given an hour plus on all major networks to basically give his own message, to give his own narrative without all of the filtering, either on the obsessively antagonistic and hateful side versus the obsessively promotional side uh, he gave his own version and i have to tell you he hit a lot of the right notes and i think from the issues that you and i talk about national security islamic reform what is the threat ideological threat he didn't cover that much it was hardly any of his talk and i think you have to acknowledge uh, that most of what his administration did in the last year was related to domestic economics and uh, the tax bill, etc. But you can't deny that ISIS is gone. That you can't deny that there is almost no territory left occupied by ISIS. It's decreased orders of magnitude, 80-90% from when President Obama handed over the reins of commander-in-chief. And you have to admit that that's because President Trump allowed his Secretary of Defense, President Trump allowed his military to wage a war In a country that we really didn't deploy that many troops in, there are some, a a thousand or two, that had to be deployed into Syria. Uh, Secretary Mattis even admitted in the past few months that those troops are going to stay there to prevent the whack-a-mole from returning. But at the end of the day, the government there is hostile. It's not even close to being like Iraq, in which... The government there supposedly was working with us. Now we've seen because of the Obama administration withdrawal, we've lost, we've lost Iraq to Iran. But still, the success for the president's first year in the State of the Union is clear in Syria that ISIS is not only in the run, is on the verge, on the verge of being decimated. But the ideology, the ideology is just as strong of jihad, of Salafi jihadism is as strong as it's ever been. But in his speech, President Trump left us with some morsels of understanding that I hope people hold on to. Yes, could there have been more about Russia and their meddling in Syria and their uh, beyond meddling, their basic uh, occupation of Syria along with Iran? Uh, There was some mention, you know, I, I think his quote that America stands with the people of Iran and their courageous struggle for freedom. That meant a lot. People listen to the president's words. Freedom fighters, 
revolutionaries, dissidents, advocates for freedom that are marching still in the streets of Iran, I'm sure were listening as they could through firewalls or whatever to the words of President Trump. Did they get a signal that we're going to do anything different, that we're going to actually help? I still think the best anti-Iran nuclear deal is an Iranian revolution, is the continuation of this revolution now that is dwindling a bit, but is still in the streets. We've seen so many advocates, women uh, waving a removal of their hijabs in the thousands, carrying signs down the streets that say death to the Khomeinists, death to Hezbollah, that carry signs that say in the streets where the clerics are populated, like in Qom and elsewhere, carrying signs that say no to an Islamic state, yes to a secular democracy. We didn't hear enough about that from the president, but he did definitely give a nod of support. I think the support of the dissident uh, Ji Sung-ho in North Korea is a support to dissidents across the world, where the United States, when it stands and recognizes in its most unifying move of government, which, which when the president gives the State of the Union, with the Supreme Court justices there, with all the members of Congress and the House and the Senate, and with the American people watching, and we recognize a dissident to one of the world's most ironclad, tyrannical regimes on the planet, and we recognize their dissident as being our friend, there's no greater signal to the rest of the dissidents on the planet. So that didn't go unnoticed by me, an advocate especially for Syrian dissidents, an advocate for anti-Islamist dissidents, anti-Wahhabi dissidents in Saudi Arabia. Yes, I'd like to see more, but I think the president's nod to dissidents everywhere could not be missed. Maybe I'm making more out of it. I'm sure there's the naysayers out there that'll say, ah, that's just a line put in there by somebody. Uh, but uh, I do think that the nod is real, as was the tweet, a few tweets the president gave in support of the Iranian revolution. Now, when you look at solutions moving forward, I do think that I hope this next year is punctuated with a move towards establishing that commission on radical Islam that the president called for in his campaign. I hope the next year calls for the president beginning to articulate the need to join Muslim reformers. He mentioned that in one of his foreign policy speeches during the campaign, but he's not done so yet as president, as commander-in-chief. I hope we begin to see a transformation to where we start to articulate that those coming in, as the president talked about, the Democrats sat on their hands, about merit-based immigration, ending chain migration, ending lottery-based diversity migration, which doesn't make any sense. We need to allow people to come in that are going to be contributing citizens to our society, that are going to share our values and our social contract. Once that starts to happen, how do we tell the Islamists from the non-Islamists? You need a commission on radical Islam to do that with leading anti-Islamist Muslims. Our reform movement is ready and willing to do that. We have yet to get any significant contact from the Trump administration. I hope next year's State of the Union is punctuated with remarks about that. And yes, I loved seeing our veterans. I loved seeing the North Korean dissident and others. I hope in the future we see State of the Unions with 
anti-Islamist Muslim dissidents, anti-Iranian theocratic dissidents, anti-Assad, anti-ISIS dissidents, anti-Wahhabi dissidents, in that we begin to distance ourselves from the bizarre friendship. Maybe short-term it makes sense, but the bizarre deep friendship that we have with the Saudi theocrats, the Qatari, the, 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 the Gulf theocrats, and the military dictators of Egypt and other military regimes. Stability, militarily, is not stability ideologically. And you heard that here, right? We've talked about that. That stability militarily between governments in the Middle East is not stability ideologically. We need to shift the axis from countering violent extremism, which only helps those guys, those men in beards and the military generals, to countering violent Islamism. And once you start to counter violent Islamism, you have to counter jihad and the Erdogans, the Khomeinists, the Ikhwanis, Muslim Brotherhood of the world, will vanish in their alliances with you, with us, because they are Islamist. This week we saw the founder of Hamas shoot himself and accidentally kill himself. And I remarked on social media, there's no better time I could think of than that deserved the takbir, an Islamic an Islamic saying of God is great. <laughs> and all that was met with tons of judgmental responses from the Islamists. How could you say that? How could you revel in somebody's death? Well, Hamas is a brotherhood organization that has reveled in its own charter for calling for the genocide of Jews, denying the Holocaust, calling for the death of Americans, of our allies. That is an enemy of America, and thus is my enemy, and I cheer their demise. So, when we come back, I want to talk to you about human rights. I want to talk about the language of human rights. Can we use that? I've been asked that recently, and it just baffles my mind that we even can even contemplate not using the language of human rights. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This. Thanks for being here. I hope we give you some food for thought, food for the soul, food for thinking about some of the issues that unfortunately get lost in the cacophony of partisan rancor that uh, seems to pathologically consume Washington and consume regular media that uh, often seems to not understand, to have the pulse on the main concerns of America. But here, I understand your concerns, and I have to tell you, this is all about legacy. To me, what is going to be the legacy of American Muslims? Is our legacy going to be one of denial, one of somnolence, one of obfuscation, or one of contrition, one of ownership, one of responsibility that we understand that the faith that we might love 
is practiced by hundreds of millions of people that believe that it should be a political system. Now, that's not the 1.6 billion, but it's a plurality, 30-40% that might believe in an Islamic state. And there are so many fronts to this battle. So here, if you join me, time to time I will come bearing fruit of discussion. You might not agree with everything I talk about, but I hope that together we can embrace some discussion, some discourse, critical thinking. There's been so many missing parts to the roads that need to be navigated towards modernity. And the reason Islamist thought has dominated the Muslim world is because the roads towards modernity have been obstructed by dictatorship, have been obstructed by fossilized thinking, by the fact that minorities and free thinkers, the intelligent people in society have been marginalized, while the kleptocrats the military dictators and the thugs dominate society and the, cle- and the theocrats in robes and beards think their interpretation of Islam is the only one. And thus they've dominated not only in their own military dictatorship countries, but globally as the West has handed them the reins of Islamic representation. And unfortunately, their progeny here in the United States, the people who eat from their petro-Islamic fuel seem to be the only ones speaking on our behalf. Children of the children of the Muslim Brotherhood thinkers. One of the examples, and I mentioned I wanted to talk to you about this, one of the examples of how perverse the conversation has gotten about this is in the conversation on human rights. Human rights has, believe it or not, become something that's difficult to define. Can you believe it? The right to have human autonomy, self-rule, choice of free-thinking individuals to choose which parts of the faith they practice, what they say, what they do. That freedom, as being an essential universal human rights, should be blind to religion, should not in any way be dominated by one religion knowing more than the other. And yet what the Islamists have done, as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came out, then in 1991 they came out with the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights, which they determined is not universal, but is unique to Islam. And as a result of being unique to Islam, following from that, is a doctrine of Sharia, a doctrine of Islamic law that encumbers with it a lack of choice because it is God's law, and from that lack of choice come singular interpretations that are dominated by ulama or scholars who have written texts on schools of thinking in the Sunni. It's Shafi, Hanafi, Hanbali, and Maliki schools of thought, and in the the Shia, It is the Ja'fari and Khomeinists and other schools of thought. That's the divisions as we see them. And now, this is all intentional. In the early 90s, as the OIC came out with its Cairo Declaration on Human Rights. And by the way, they don't even like that term human rights, which is the main point that I want to bring to you today. 
they also started to develop that term Islamophobia. And we'll talk about that again. I've talked about it before. Islamophobia is a term used to denote here in America the concept of big what they mean is they when they're talking to non-muslims they say you're islamophobic meaning that you are a bigot against muslims but bigotry is a form of hatred against a specific race or faith group anti-semitism is hate against jewish people it's not called judeophobia the reason the islamists called it islamophobia is because they want to sen- to, to make synonymous criticisms of Islam with criticisms of Muslims and hate of Muslims. They want to make the ideas of Islam anthropomorphized into being human so that you can't criticize ideas. And that's why our Muslim reform movement says ideas don't have rights, human beings do. And that undercuts the very concept of even the use of the term Islamophobia, which I reject. But let's get to this term, human rights. It's no doubt that now into the 21st century, it stands to reason that the Islamists don't want us. They say, oh, we won't even listen to anyone who talks about human rights. And now the State Department has made part of its entire mantra that they want to prevent the loss of an engagement and conversation of various Islamic groups because they don't really want to westernize the conversation into using terms like human rights. So therefore, they'll use other terms about about compassion, about anti-terrorism, about tolerance. Those are facades in an Orwellian fashion to prevent the conversation about human rights. Universal human rights that every human being understands are part and parcel of the equality of every individual. The hallmark. It should stand to reason that the only groups offended or repulsed by using the term human rights are going to be those who stand the most to lose by its defense. The Islamist establishment tyrants and the totalitarian governments across the Muslim-majority world. The hallmark of these Orwellian zealots is the control of language. As I mentioned in Islamophobia, they want to control the language. When you talk human rights, you then you have to talk about human beings. They want to dismiss that as Western when in fact it is very human. The people, if the language was so bad to use and makes people turn off, why are the signs in the streets of the thousands in Tehran and Qom and Cairo about their human rights, about their freedoms, about their liberty, about their right to economic individuality. Why is that? The people aren't afraid of those words. The only people afraid of those words are the tyrant, the tribal warlords, the leaders, the king of Saudi Arabia and his spoon-fed, silver spoon-fed princes, the king of Dubai and of Qatar and all of these countries that they want to dominate which rights their citizens get, the slaves of their, their, their states get, rather than treat them as equal human beings. And if they did, they'd have to recognize human rights. The only way forward for their citizens, the human beings of those nations, is revolutions. 
The only way they're going to get their human rights recognized is revolutions, and we in the West have an obligation morally to use the language of human rights because that's the language the people want to use because that's their right inalienable from God. Now, the Islamists think they're God. The Islamists think that, well, if God wanted to talk human rights, he would have used those terms in the Quran and we can have a theological discussion, and we will on this program. I'll talk to you about various rights as they're discussed in the Quran. Uh, and on our homepage at AIF Democracy, we have the passage that we should speak for justice, stand for justice, even if it be against our own kin. To me, that's a statement of human rights. Or the statement of the Quran that God will not help a people unless they help themselves first unless they treat their own maladies first. That's about individual rights, rugged individualism. And you need only look at the writings, the books, the reformers, the free thinkers, the prisoners of conscience, see what they write. If, they, if you think the people of the Middle East don't want to use the term human rights, they do. It is the Islamists, the Hamases of the world that don't want you to use that term because they know they will lose the debate about their so-called group rights, the collective identity movements of Islamist rights. They'll lose that if we start talking about individual human rights. The future of American interests, human interests, and the interests of freedom and liberty are going to be with those with the courage and the bravery to use that human rights language, as we saw in the Arab Awakening in 2011. The side might now, if we defend those on the streets, it might end up with anarchy, it might end up with more chaos. But at the end of the day, that is the right way. And it is the only way forward, other than continuing to reproduce the same errors of the 20th century and from the 13th century and even from the 8th century. The youth movements, the anti-tyranny movements are about human rights. So use those words. Hang on to those languages. Don't allow the language of truth that comes out of our mouth to change because we think that it's all about being at the table. As the president reiterated at the State of the Union this week, the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel was stating the obvious for decades, we've ignored the obvious because we thought it would make them not come to the table when, in fact, their militant veto prevented them from being treated like adults and having to come to terms with genuine criticism and genuine equality. And that's one example. And there's tons and tons of others. We'll be back next segment. Give you a little update on a couple issues. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. So now you're saying now he's insulted the immigrants and what he should have done was talk about not those MS-13 or 16 or whatever. Talk about the crime in America against Americans. So you agree with the president. He should be putting Americans first when it comes to crime. Do you see how this is the point I'm making where it's just about I gotta hate Trump. The morning blaze 
Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Always a lot to talk about. I stepped back this week, gave you some sort of 70,000-foot big-picture views. And I want to talk to you about, let's run through a few topics that I think should be at the top of the news and unfortunately have not been. And something I've been talking to you about is the importance, this tipping point, I think, that is happening in Iran. And hats off to Mark Dubowitz and Saad Gassiminijad, who had a great piece in the Wall Street Journal about what are things we could be doing to begin to tip what's happening in Iran. And we'll give you a little bit of an update on Tariq Ramadan's case that seems to be exploding and again is ignored by much of the mainstream media. But first, let's talk about Iran. What can we be doing other than, you know, as I said, hats off to the president for covering through tweets and through attention in the State of the Union, a, a bit of the importance of the Iranian revolution, that that's probably the best American policy supporting that. But as Dubowitz and others point out, the money, the money needs to be choked off in Iran, rather than what the Obama administration did was hand hundreds of billions of dollars back to Iran. We should be imposing sanctions. We should be strangulating their regime. And, you know, one of the barriers, as they point out, is the European con- countries and businesses, and including Boeing and a few other, that when the sanction regime ended, started to go to Tehran quickly to try to open up these new contracts, be it Airbus or whatever, uh, trying to start to build airplanes and Etc. And they thought, oh, this would be a way to open the economy and using the same logic that some use for Cuba and China. And as we see with these governments, they keep the money from their people and they use it to feed genocide in Syria. They use it to feed Hezbollah and terror around the world. And that's what the signs on the streets said. The signs on the streets in, in, in Tehran and Qom and elsewhere said, stop sending money to Syria. Look here, not over there. The people are upset. They saw that. And the Obama administration is nowhere to be found to talk about all of their bizarre, roundly and soundly criticized comments that somehow this was going to go to the people. Even a video that President Obama distributed in Iran on the holiday of Nahruz said, this money will come to you, that you can improve your societies, your workforce, etc. They saw none of it. It's all corrupt. So we have to hit Ayatollah Khomeini in his pocketbook. And how do you do that? The Trump administration has offered some support, but while Khomeini brags about his lifestyle, he runs multi-billion dollar corporate conglomerates. His three most valuable possessions are the execution of the Imam Khomeini's order, or the EIKO, the Mustazafan Foundation, and the Atsan Quds Razavi. The businesses have interests in nearly every Iranian industry and are worth approximately $200 billion. 
And since 1979 revolution, they've acquired considerable share of the assets from the systematic confiscation of private property that followed that revolution. They don't pay taxes. They, they've never been audited. They use political connections to maneuver their rivals. And Reuters conducted an investigation in 2013 that it was worth around $95 billion, more than half of its assets in real estate. So what can we do? The bottom line is the U.S. Treasury in 2013 enacted sanctions against EIKO and 37 of its subsidiaries. Dubowitz goes on to explain in the Wall Street Journal that a Treasury press release said the entity's goal is to generate and control massive off-the-books investments shielded from the view of the Iranian people and international regulators. And yet... The Obama administration lifted the sanctions as part of the 2015 nuclear deal. Never mind, as Dubitz and his colleagues say, never mind that their original designation had nothing to do with Iran's nuclear program. Last year's investigation by Reuters in January 2017 found that companies controlled by EIKO signed at least five contracts with foreign firms. Those included a $10 billion agreement to build oil refineries in South Korea's Daewoo Engineering and Construction. And it goes on. While these entities are far, let me quote Dubowitz's piece, while these entities are far from transparent, the U.S. knows enough to target them with sanctions. Foundations for the Defense of Democracy has identified 146 Khomeini-owned companies and 144 executives and board members associated with these companies. The Trump administration can use the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act of 2016 to isolate the Khamenei business empire, freeze its assets, and penalize international companies that enrich the Iranian regime. So, if President Trump is on the same side as the Iranian protesters, against the supreme leader, now is the time to push that tipping point to move forward. That is what we should be doing. Where is it? We need economic sanctions. Just as when the Re Syrian revolution started, we talked about the need for sanctions against Assad. And they would have worked had the Russians and Iranians not given him a blank check and even printed money for him outside Syria as the sanctions were strangulating the Assad family and the Assad regime. That's what needs to happen in Iran. Last, I want to move to another subject I've covered here is Tariq Ramadan. Now, there have been three or four brave, courageous souls, ladies that have come out about sexual abuse, about manipulation, about exploitation of their relationship, of, of uh, uh, physical abuse. But now, there are stories coming out that the victims of Oxford professor Tariq Ramadan and the tens, if not the hundreds, stretching back over more than two decades, according to a new expose. Mejda Bernoussi, a woman of Moroccan origin, kept a daily journal throughout her tumultuous relationship with a prominent Islamic scholar. French magazine Le Point pointed this out this week. Not covered too much in media. And I need not remind you of who Tariq Ramadan is. 
a guy who the Obama State Department, Hillary State Department, removed the travel ban because he had not been allowed to come in the United States because he had sympathized and raised money for Hamas. He denied that claim and was allowed to come back and visit the United States. And, and as much as he claims to be a reformer and has written books that are what I would call quasi-neo-Salafi reform, he's the grandson of the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna. He is the slick-tongued European Muslim scholar who refuses to deconstruct the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's not just he denies being an Islamist. He has never built a construct of ideas that takes apart the ideas of the Islamic State. But at the key of these allegations is not just also just another criticism of one person. This is a reminder that the Islamists think they're above humanity. The Islamists think they are God and people are their serve, their servants, their slaves, and are not abused when they abuse them because they are, God forbid, given that right to do that. So this is why they believe in a caliphate. What does caliph mean? Caliph means the surgerant of God on earth, the representative of God on earth. So they think they are God. They think they can do these things. This is so classic of Islamists. This is why the the, the militants behead, and this is why the so-called nonviolent moderates will exploit Western society and lie to them up front. Some call it taqiyya. I call it simply deception and pandering in order to get something by the ends justifying the means through false denials and manipulation in an Orwellian sense. Majda Bernoussi, a woman of Moroccan origin, kept a daily journal throughout her tumultuous relationship with the prominent Islamic scholar. She was not raped or beaten, but she pushed back. She had documentation of back-and-forth email, claims to have been threatened by his fans when she tried to denounce him for his predatory behaviors towards women. She's planning to publish her journal entitled A Voyage into Troubled Waters with Tariq Ramadan. Three women so far prior to her had accused him of rape, providing graphic details in interviews and on social media. He's denied them. He's even claimed libel and slander against those who have reported it. But Bernoussi's story is very, very detailed. She talks about how she came back from Mecca and reached out to him, and slowly the relationship changed from his fake neutrality, gave way to tender words, then love. And it goes on about how he exploited her. She said she felt the evil in him, the fake, the deceived, make-up man of Islam. And a relationship developed nonetheless, he even asked her to be his wife. He told me he was divorced. He never answered the most basic questions about his family and his private life. And she sent him text messages saying, Would people continue to come and listen to your sermons if they knew what you were doing to their daughters? And it goes on. So, the teaching point here is that Islamists think they're above humanity. Islamists think they are God.
We'll see. Let the court system adjudicate. Ramadan was actually detained recently in travel in Europe. And I think the French in Paris detained him as they figure out what's going on. And I hope more of the Islamists are come to account. But what I really hope is that the Muslim population in the West begin to realize that they need anti-Islamist leaders, that they need a movement, a revolution in the lands where we have the freedom to do it so that we can begin to plant the seeds of ideas of reform here in America, in Canada, in Europe, so that it can be spread across the airwaves in Islamic-majority countries. God bless the Mejda Bernusis of the world and others who, with the courage to speak out, But we need more voices. We need not only those who are victims, but we need leaders who care about a legacy of ideas to displace what these Islamists are doing to destroy the faith of Islam and instead leave a legacy like the reformers of Christianity left the legacy of America, left the legacy of liberal democracy under God. So too I think that we Muslims can leave a legacy learning that the American system, I believe, is the best system on the planet. It's why I became a naval officer and why I would die for this country. I would never want to die for jihad. Thanks for joining me week to week. We'll be back next week as your faithful, as your faithful reformer, your American patriot. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.